As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Welcome to The Audible, presented by Trader Joe's. I'm Bruce Feldman. No Stu Mandel. He is on vacation with his family. But uh, we have two guests today. I think you'll really like this episode. We're going to be joined by Matt Campbell. He is the great young coach at Iowa State. We're going to get into a lot of topics with him, not just about program building, but why they've been able to have success at a place nobody's really had success at, and his path and also his perspective on what it takes to develop talent. I think it's a big picture topic that you'll see we dig into. He has a really interesting interesting view of things, and I think we'll get at some really good stuff. Our other guest is Chuck McDonald. He is a colleague of mine at Fox Sports. And he's one of the best game producers in the business. And Chuck has been around for about two decades. And I thought it would be fascinating for a lot of people to hear what it's like behind the curtain of a game broadcast, as well as some of Chuck's stories. So we're going to start out with Matt Campbell, and then we'll get to Chuck in a minute. And next week, Stu will be back on the Audible. At least I think he will. And now we are thrilled to be joined by our guest today on the Audible, Matt Campbell. He's the outstanding coach at Iowa State who has worked some wonders there in Ames. Coach, I want to throw out a crazy stat that I've seen that's happened under your watch in the last two years. ISU is 3-1 and one versus top 10 teams the past two years. In the previous 25 years before this run, ISU was 2-33 and 33 in top 10 games. So what exactly have you guys been able to get, get accomplished there? How does this kind of thing happen? Yeah, you know, I, I think from our end of it, Bruce, it's been, it's really been that our kids, I think, really started to believe that they could be successful here and you know I'll never forget coming in the, the, the first team meeting here and ironically we had played Iowa State the year before we came here and you know it was I remember preparing for it and I think in the preparation piece you're like man there, there are some good pieces to the puzzle and when we played in a game it was a we ended up winning a game in overtime against them when we were at Toledo and I, I remember walking in that first meeting and there were some really good body good looking football players in that room and I think the thing that stuck out to me is really the lack of belief that they could be successful and you know the credit really a lot of it has to go to the kids that have been in the program that were in the program that kind of just stayed the course with us and you know I, I think it's been a alignment both from our coaching staff and the players in the program that we can get this done here and then understanding what it takes to get it done here. So how exactly does a coaching staff instill that kind of belief in kids? Well, I I think the biggest thing, the first thing that has to happen is the coaching staff's got to be aligned to a mission and to a belief system. And you know, I think one of the real fortunate things is the majority of our coaching staff have been together. You know, a lot of a lot of the guys that have come with us here to Iowa State were guys that that had been on the on the coaching staff at Toledo with me. You know, a lot some of those guys are guys that now who are who had played for me somewhere down the line, and so I think that all of us have a really similar understanding of what it takes to be successful, and 
you know, we have a belief system on what it takes to, to get things done. And I think that unity has really rubbed off on our kids in terms of, you know, they're, they're together, they believe in each other. And I think in turn, you know, our kids at some point finally were able to, to catch that belief system and understand that belief system. How much do you guys as a staff meet about just kind of harping on a certain message and making sure that it's not just that the players know you care, but that, you know, to stay to stay upbeat, to stay positive, to kind of reinforce that, even if the product on the field, I mean, you guys struggled in the first year where you won three games. How do you kind of keep reinforcing it? I mean, is there ways that you guys talked about different messaging techniques and things like that? I think the first thing, we've never believed in a process being a quick fix that this is, there's a process that it takes to be successful. And, you know, I think that part of us being together for a period of time now, and we have had those conversations. And, you know, we had them when we were trying to go from good to great when we were at Toledo. And, you know, I think we also were really honest with each other when we came to Iowa State and said, here's the hand we were dealt. And, you know, here's here's exactly what's going on here. And I, I think that was really big for our end, too, when we came here. Not to say, hey, we're going to do it exactly this way or do it exactly that way. You know, let's let's first and foremost understand what went on here. You know, what was going well here? What are some of those areas that weren't going on? And then let's try to figure out how do we, what are those right steps to get this program where it needs to go? And you are right. You know, ironically, for us, our, we lose our first three games. We lost to a good Northern Iowa team in our home opener. We, we then had to play, you know, in our, our rival game against Iowa and played, you know, they, they blew us out over in Iowa. And then we, we had come had to go to TCU in our first three games and, and got beat that in all three games. And, you know, it was the end of the, it was finally the end of the, the fourth quarter of that TCU game, our, our first year here, where I saw our kids kind of fight back. And, you know, I think it's some of those things that we had harped on as a coaching staff, not the winning and the losing, but the daily attention to detail and the daily expectation to be successful. You saw some of those things start to finally come into fruition. And so, you know, I've always been a big believer that you almost have to surrender the outcome and you have to be willing to go to work on the process to be the best version of you. And that's something that our staff has really believed in. And I think that's what's made them successful coaches. And I think that's what they've asked their kids to do. And, you know, we're, we're finally getting to that point. And I think that's really hard in our society to do. And it's really hard to be honest with you, in our sport to do because it is highly competitive and ultimately we all want to win. But the reality of it is, especially when you are playing highly competitive football games consistently and you're in a place like Iowa State where talent-wise, you, you're probably never going to be better than the people that you're playing against. It does come, can we maximize and reach our full potential both with the people that we're playing with and collectively as a team? And, you know, I think getting those messages understood across the board, it, it's been a journey. And it, it's been really, honestly, it's been really rewarding to have those meetings and talk about that understanding and that process alone. And I think we all continue to grow, you know, and, and not that we all have all the answers, because I, I think that's the one fun thing about it is we're continuing to test and grow and try to fill those margins in across the board. You know, one of the things that kind of towards that end, I remember talking to a team that you had played, one of the guys I know on the staff, and I said, what happened? You know, it's because it's not like, you know, people knew about your running back, David Montgomery, they knew about Hakeem Butler, but it wasn't like there was a lot of buzz necessarily about individual defensive players or anything. And, and this person on the other staff just said, they just played a lot harder than, than you do. You know, is that, that's the thing. And, you know, it, it, it's an interesting kind of to hear that. And I feel like just from a media perspective, it's kind of a uniquely simplistic yet kind of complex insight into what great coaching is. Cause I feel like the older I get as a, a reporter and the more experienced, I'm starting to believe that, you know, myself and many of my, you know, friends in the media, we kind of muck this up a little bit because we get so caught in lauding scheme and the X and O's and maybe not seeing the forest through the trees that, you know, you're in a quest for smart answers, and sometimes it's just about how do you get them to play, be at their best on Saturdays. Do you think a lot of times people on the outside and maybe even in the inside of the business kind of confuse that stuff and kind of lose their way with it? 
Well, I, I think that I think you, you're so right, Bruce, on the fact that sometimes we worry in, in our profession and, and we look outside of this and we get so caught up in scheme and we get so caught up in big plays or the size of players and, and from the evaluation piece of it to the schematic piece of it. But it still does come down to playing with attitude, playing with effort, playing with great detail, playing with great precision, having the ability to play with great consistency. These these terms that I think we learned as as you know, as young kids growing up, and you know, I, I was fortunate to have a father that was a high school football coach, and, and hearing and being a part of that my entire life, and you know, those those understanding of base principles pounded in for so long that I think that's something that we constantly go back to, you know, of fundamentals, detail, preparation, and the the fact of it still comes down to the ability to execute and play with a sense of relentlessness for 60 minutes. And, you know, those are things that at a place like Iowa State where, again, you're never going to walk out there and we're never going to be the most talented team on the field. It's just not going to happen. And number one, you got to be able to admit that. Number two, you got to be willing to say, okay, now does that mean we can't win games? Because because that's going to be the factor. No. So what? Where are those margins, or what can we control that gives us a chance to be successful? And to be honest with you, I think it's been rewarding because this even this job has really challenged my beliefs in coaching. You know, and I, I'm young. I still, like I said, don't have all the answers and don't think I do. But I think what what this job's challenged me to really believe it is what you just said, the fundamentals, the detail, the understanding of those things that I think we grew up and really we were sacred to what made us successful or what I believe success looked like. You know, I, I don't think we're, I think sometimes we, we think other things make success happen, but what's the real root of it? I hope those are things that we're finding and really learning here since we've been at Iowa State. You know, I wanted to ask you on this because this kind of struck me. We're, you know, you mentioned talent, and a lot of times I feel like it's easy for us you know, not just as as fans and media, but to kind of equate talent with what was their ranking on rivals or two four seven and as recruits. And in my head, I think of talent as as speed and explosiveness and some of that kind of thing. But you had David Montgomery; he wouldn't have been described as a talent coming out of high school in terms of like in, in terms of what he was valued as a recruit. I don't want to ask you if talent is necessarily quote unquote overrated, but when you think of talent as an evaluator. And this is, you just had Brock Purdy, who is a three-star recruit, and a great linebacker, Mike Rose, who is a three-star recruit, even though one had offers from Alabama. So how do you define talent, and how does that fit into whether you can compete for a Big 12 title? You know, whether you have a, you know, your class was ranked 55th or something last year, and obviously had some difference makers. So how do you, how do you define it, and how critical is that definition into having success in this day and age? I do think talent is still important. The key is the ability to get that talent to reach its full potential during the time that it's in your program. And there comes the word that I think is is what the absolute most critical piece is, and that's development. And our job is twofold. Number one, finding the young men that out there fit schematically and fit positionally our agenda that we say they have the tools that if we develop correctly can turn into that four or five star player within our program. And I think that's how we've always evaluated the evaluation process. And then it's making sure within the program's walls that the teaching, the fundamentals, the development process mentally, physically, you know, socially and psychologically, it has a chance in in its time frame to maximize and reach its full potential. And so I think when we go into the recruiting process, it's really important for us to find those guys that not only have the physical talent, but the mental fortitude that will allow it to develop to reach its full potential within our program. And I think that's where the challenge comes sometimes in recruiting. Because, you know, I think sometimes you can get awed by that. Maybe that talent is very high of a recruit, but maybe the character or, you know, the mental fortitude's not the same. And it, it'll never have a chance within our program 
to reach its full potential and you have to say no and you have to have the ability to walk away knowing that that talent, that player may not fit our program and, you know, maybe it's sometimes taking maybe a lesser developed player right now but knowing that we can maximize his full potential down the road and that player's got a chance to be a great player within our system. And so I think if you if you look back at our time at Toledo and maybe the you look through our, our first couple years here at Iowa State, that's the area where I think we've been able to maximize and truly gain talent within our program and, and be able to maximize the potential of our players. You know, just in your football DNA, as you mentioned, your dad was a coach. He was a coach at Massillon, which is obviously a legendary program in Ohio. Then you played at Mount Union, another legendary football producing place that cranks out coaches left and right. So you were a D lineman at, at Mount Union. You were an All American. What is the transition process for a D line guy to learn how to become an offensive coordinator? Well, you're right. You know, I, I think that. I was ready to, I had sent out, I think, every every possible graduate assistant letter known to mankind back in then when I was getting ready to graduate at Mount Union. And, you know, as we all know, and then you find out today, those jobs are hard to come by. And at that time, there was one on offense and one on defense. But, you know, I got really fortunate late May. I was actually I was actually back home working. I was going to come back to Mount Union as a student coach the following season, and I had met somebody I was student teaching in the spring who had an in at Bowling Green, and Coach Meyer had just left to go to Utah. Greg Brandon had taken over the uh, the football program, and, and a graduate assistant job had opened up. I went to interview for it on a Friday, and I. I I got it, and I started on Monday, and it was on the offensive side of the football. And, you know, my history, I played tight end and I played defensive line. But, um, you know, they, they liked the fact that I had a defensive background to be the offensive graduate assistant. You know, obviously, it's breaking down all the defensive film. And so it was a fascinating time to be there. And there were some great coaches on that offensive staff, and they were kind of on the cutting edge of the spread offense. And I, I worked with an offensive line coach, Greg Studraw, who's now at Ohio State. He's had a great career in college football and a brilliant offensive football mind. And that was probably the greatest thing that ever happened to me because, number one, it forced me to, to really understand offensive line play. And number two, you know, it was such a great time to come into college football on the offensive side because it was it was a spread offense. And so, you know, there was it was two fascinating years of, you know, learning with some great coaches on that side of the ball. It was Mick McCall was at Northwestern, Zach Azani was a receiver coach now with the Broncos, and Dennis Springer, who now works at Northwestern as well, and then obviously Greg Stutrell. So there was great coaches, and I got to watch these teachers and, and coaches, not only the scheme, but how they approached it, and we were really fortunate to be successful and then get hired back to Mount Union to bring this knowledge, and it almost forced me to really have to know my stuff. And I think this is a, a tribute to to Coach Karras, who had called the place forever about Union, and, and you know, I think great coaches are lifelong learners, and you know, they had not won the national championship the two years prior or past me graduating. We'd come back, and he'd said, "Man, I, I'd like to expand our offense." And Coach Karras is a huge West Coast offense, and you know, I formation, and it was great because we we combined the spread offense and what we learned there and, and the eye formation. And I think it really was like almost thesis, uh, you know, a master's thesis on offensive football and learned so much during those times there. So I think for me, it just forced me to be in a situation at a time where I had to be responsible. I had to be prepared to stand up for what I believed in at a really young age. And, and I got those opportunities and, and, and got those opportunities with great people mentoring me along the way because obviously, like anything, you, you're always growing and you're making mistakes and you're willing to learn from them. And, you know, to have great people to teach that to you along the way was huge. I saw a story a long time ago that you were, I guess, the Patriots had reached out. This is back in your early stages of your coaching career to see if you wanted to interf- interview for a job on their in their I guess it would, in some capacity. What was the story about that, and how hard was it to just say, hey, I'm, I'm good where I'm at, and not go that route to work for Bill Belichick in some capacity? Yeah, you know, it, uh, it was interesting. It was my first year at Bowling Green. We had a quarterback, if you remember, a kid named Josh Harris, who ended up getting sure. drafted, you know, I think in the sixth round by the Ravens. And Josh was a great player. And the, everybody was coming in. Well, Scott Pioli at that time was, was with New England, had come in to – 
heading back to the Detroit airport, and you know, I had asked, you know, can you help me get there? And, and we're able to help him out. And then came back one more time to evaluate Josh, and, and we, we had just hit it off. And he, um, you know, he said, hey, you know, I know we're going to have some opportunities, and, you know, would you be interested in an opportunity in New England to come out within the scouting department? And I remember, you know, calling Coach Karras and just said, hey, like, what do you think about this? And I'll never forget, he said, want you he said you should drive get in your car now and drive to New England and um, you know I, I, I kind of chuckled at it but I, there was a part of me that I knew I wanted to coach and I was learning so much about how to you know how to run an offense and you know there was great coaches there and you know I felt like I, I was just getting to really learn and understand what I was doing and I, I almost felt like you know I, I hadn't done my due, ju- due diligence there of fulfilling my obligation at Bowling Green and so I remember calling back and just saying I, I really appreciate the, the opportunity to come out and talk about it but you know I'm going to stay and you know I, I think you know I think back to that and again everything happened for a reason and you know it certainly was a was a tremendous learning experience for me going into the next year there at Bowling Green and learned a lot but uh, you know have at least been able to keep some of those ties and connections and um, but I knew I wanted to coach and I, I knew that was my passion but uh you know, that's a little bit of the story about the New England piece. Do you ever wonder, I know you've had obviously a ton of success already, but do you ever wonder what if, if you had gone out, I imagine you probably would have worked your way up. It seems like Bill Belichick's, you know, what they've done there is is had guys learn their system and then eventually work their way onto roles in the staff. I mean, have you given any thought to that piece of it or just like, hey, I'm good where I'm at? You know, I, I think one thing from my end of it is, is I've always, you know, just kind of whatever choices I've made, I've always won 110% forward. And, you know, obviously the the respect I have for, for what Coach Belichick's done, what that program's done, the great coaches that have come out of there, you know, I, I think have been fascinating and, and it's been fun to follow. And to be honest with you, I studied so much of it from afar. But I've also felt like it's been really rewarding to kind of blaze my own trail, you know, and, and say, you know what, you know, we're going to do it. We're going to do it the old-fashioned way and just kind of go to work, really continue to learn and grow and, and be the best coach I can be wherever my, you know, wherever my fam- my feet were planted. And so, you know, I, I, I haven't, but I've admired what they've done from afar. And believe me, I don't know if anybody's studied them more than I have about how they do what they do and the success they've been able to sustain. Before I let you go, I mean, your quarterback, you guys found quite a gem in Brock Purdy last year. How did you find him? How did he end up there? And what is next for him after a really impressive freshman year? Where do you think he needs to kind of go from there? Well, you know, Brock's, Brock's story is really unique because it wasn't a situation where, you know, we had been recruiting Brock as, as accelerated as recruiting is, and especially quarterback recruiting today. You know, Brock was a guy that, that we had tracked going into his senior year and to be honest with you from our end we had we didn't know if we were going to take a quarterback you know in that in that class and we had Kyle Kemp who kind of came onto the scene two years ago and really took over our, our program and Kyle had said along the way hey I, I think I might have the ability to get a sixth year and you know we we didn't know for sure if that was going to happen so as, as we got to the end end of our, our football season, I said, man, show me the best quarterbacks in the country that aren't committed. And we watched some film, and I, I remember watching Brock's film, and I was so impressed with the videotape. And he had he had led his high school football team, Perry High School, in, in Arizona to a state, uh, to a big school state championship game. And, you know, I, I, I watched about four or five game films, and I, I was so intrigued by it that it was, it's, it's late December, and I got on the phone, I called his head coach, and we talked for about 45 minutes, and I just said, I, I love this guy, what's going on? And Brock was really, I think it was on a Thursday night, Brock was getting ready to go to Boise State for an official visit. And so, you know, I, I, I asked the coach if it was okay to, to call Brock and touch base, and he allowed me to do that, which I appreciated, and talked to Brock for about 45 minutes, and just was just, um you know, truly impressed with everything he stood for on the videotape and then talking to him. We offered him a scholarship and the, um, you know, one of the Boise visit the next weekend, he had, he came to Iowa State. We had a great visit and, you know, in the meantime, through the next couple of weeks, he had certainly started to get a lot more interest and Texas A&M came into the picture, Alabama came into the picture um, in the January recruiting phase. And so we were, 
you know, I think it was just one of those fits. You know, Brock was really looking to go do something different. Brock was a guy that had taken a high school program and, and, and totally rebuilt it from the ground up with, with a great high school football coach. And, you know, I, I think he was intrigued by the opportunity at hand here, here in Ames. And, you know, I think we were all excited and maybe a little bit uh, surprised that he, he did you know, at the end of recruiting, decided to come to Iowa State, but really just ecstatic to have him and his family come be a part of it. So, you know, Brock wasn't a guy that was graduating early. You know, he came in here in June, and you could tell that there was a sense of seriousness about it and a competitiveness about Brock that's really special. And lo and behold, you're going into last football season, and Kyle gets hurt in our first football game, and, you know, we kind of, you know, tried to kind of meander around. We had a kid named Seb Nolan, who had played a lot for us the year before as well. As well. And, you know, he just kept seeing Brock come on and come on and practice. And it was finally, you know, we're sitting at one and three. And, you know, you, you saw the competitiveness of this young guy. And he said, man, we got to give this guy a chance. And I remember one in the Oklahoma State game last year. And I just told both quarterbacks, I said, listen, you're both going to play. And, and to be honest with you, you know, we, we started Zeb and played the first two series of the game. But then Brock went in and, and really never came out from then on. You know, and, and had a great game against Oklahoma State. You know, really, we were able to win seven of the last eight. And the credit goes to the poise and the character of this this young, talented quarterback. And you know, I, I think that's the thing about Brock that's really impressive that he had these unique leadership traits and ability from the day he walked on our campus and the poise to handle everything that was coming at him and I think the greatest poise that I saw him be able to handle was success and I think that's really hard sometimes for a young talented football player especially at the quarterback position and you saw him growing get better last year during the year and so I, I think the thing now is how do you take an offense you know what his skill sets are and we really didn't have the ability to do that a year ago even though we transitioned as the season went to really put an offense around his skill set and his his ability, and, and that's been really fun to dive into in the offseason. And I think when you do that at the quarterback position, they can start to take great ownership of it. And I think the great quarterbacks in college football that you see and you've seen is you're, you're not really always playing against a coordinator or head coach. You're playing against a quarterback that's owning the offense. And I think that's Brock's next step is – and that's something we put a lot of time and effort into in the offseason. Just excited to watch him keep making a blossom and continue to grow in, in those areas. Anything to, uh, like, how do you, I don't say work around, but you lose a great running back, David Montgomery. You lose a big play man at receiver and Hakeem Butler. From what you saw in the spring, who do you expect to step up and, and fill some of that void? Yeah, you know, I, I think that part's really what's fun for us, and that's I think that's what's fun about you know, where we're at is you have to constantly, you know, find your, your players, you know, and you have to be willing to adapt to what you have. You know, I, I don't think we'll ever be a program where it's going to say, hey, this is exactly what we're doing. You know, we've got a saying here, players, formations, plays. Like, who are those players? What formations do you get into and what plays do you run? And, you know, I, I think, you know, we're finally in the position here. We It's taken us four years now to really develop on the offensive line. And I think we're, we're finally at the point where we're, we're a serious to mind that we can be really good. And, you know, we, we came in here, we had no scholarship tight ends when we came to Iowa State. Now, you know, we feel like we've got four really talented tight ends. And, you know, we've got, you know, a couple of receivers back that did some really good things to rebuild who was a big play receiver for us last year. Deshante Jones will be a four-year starter in the slot. And um, and then it's the same thing. You, you hope that tight end and O-line group and a, and a veteran quarterback can usher in some talent at the tailback spot. You know, we'll get two really talented freshmen coming in, but, you know, we also have three guys in Sheldon Crony, you know, Kane Nwongu, Johnny Lang, who actually played for us in some, in some big games and, you know, they're, they're guys that have been able to do some really good things, but now they get their shot at being the guy at the tailback spot. So, you know, I think it's evolving that offense around this new talent, some of the new guys who are now those players in our offense. And, 
I think that's the thing that's really fun about offensive football is you constantly can be evolving. All right, Coach, we appreciate you being so generous with your time. Uh, you've been a great supporter of, of this podcast in the past. We're excited to see what you're going to do, do what you're going to do next at Iowa State. It's really been a remarkable three years there so far, and um, I imagine it's fans have good reason to be excited, especially with this young quarterback and what you guys have done there. So, uh, best of luck, and we look forward to seeing you in the fall. All right, Bruce. Thanks so much for having me on. And now we're pleased to be joined on the Audible by my second guest for this show. He is Chuck McDonald. He's the lead producer for Fox College Football's top broadcast. You'll know that crew as Jenny Taft, Gus Johnson, and Joel Klatt. Chuck's got a long history with Fox and in sports TV, and I thought he'd have a really fascinating perspective to share to go behind the scenes of what it's like to be in the big chair of the truck at big games so, Chuck, thanks for joining us on the Audible today. Hey, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. All right. So, as I said, you've had a long, uh, even though you're not that old, you've had a long career in sports TV. <laughs> we're getting uh, there. Yeah, we're all getting there. So, so tell me, what is your philosophy on, on doing a game broadcast that you, that you, when you set out before the game is kicked, after the meetings maybe you guys have had, you've been there for a day and a half or so, but you, they haven't come to you. What is the philosophy you try to always keep in mind as you sit there? I think the biggest thing that's really a Fox philosophy, it goes all the way back from when I started, was be as prepared or more prepared than, than other people doing it, but then forget all of your preconceived notions, everything you thought was going to happen. All of that goes out the window, and that's just background information for you, and you know you're ready for things to happen but the key is cover the game that happens. You never know what's going to happen. It's the beauty of probably college football even more than pro football most of the time. You, you just never know. You're talking 18 to 22-year-old kids, and anything can happen. The, you know, the underdog can win on any day. So I, I think the biggest thing is, is to let the game come to you and cover what happens that, you know, that unfolds for you and then just let the announcers uh, be in the moment as much as possible. That's the hardest part as a producer is try not to get in the way in a lot of ways. So, so you have next to you is your is your director, and then obviously the, the the people who are on the broadcast who are who are listening to you. And there's there's got to be a connection. What is the hardest part of that juggling act where you're trying to rely on a lot of other people who are in the truck? It's going really fast. I mean, so you're into the game, but at the same point, you're kind of a little bit detached from the game too. How do you balance that? I think the key for us, and this, again, it goes back to the guys I started working with, and I think you see it on the best crews, is just the chemistry of the entire crew is the important part. Like, I could be really good on a given day, or my director could be really good, or, you know, the announcers could have a great day, but if we all aren't on the same page, then the broadcast is going to feel choppy and mistakes are going to get made so i think i think the biggest thing is getting everybody to buy into the philosophy of how you're going to cover a game and every crew has a different personality to it you know when you watch herb street and uh fowler i mean they they have a style that's their own and i think that's what we've done a, a really um good job of the last few years is just getting Joel and Gus comfortable with each other to where they're, they have their own sound and their own style. We're not trying to be anyone else. And then the rest of us behind the scenes are to kind of read their minds in a lot of ways, know where they're going, get to know them, talk to them as much during the week in the meetings and, and just over the years get to know where they're going to go without them having to tell us. I think that that's the biggest challenge. And I think when you see the really good crews, when you look at the Sunday night football crew, you look at the A crews and the NFL and all that, the longer they're together, the better they are and the more they think like each other. That's the key. It's, it's just like a sport. I mean, the, the better everyone's on the same playbook, the, the better it's going to look. I feel like Jenny, because of her personality, would fit in pretty much easily with anybody. Like you could throw into anybody, everybody's going to like her. She's going to just blend, you know, fit in. Gus and Joel are unique personalities. They're not very similar, at least my understanding. I know, I know, I know Joel better than I know Gus, but they seem to be pretty opposite, yet it works. How has that marriage, because it really is kind of a TV marriage when you're out there like that, 
how has that marriage kind of surprised you in how it's grown and how much do you kind of have to sit back and let it go? And how much do you kind of find like you need to get in, get involved with these two? You know, I think early on my job was to kind to, you know, it's kind of create uh, situations where they get to know each other. I think that's the key. I think they, they have the utmost respect for each other's skill sets, which is huge. But I think they had that from day one. I mean, Joel had been doing studio at Fox. He had done uh, the B crew and, you know, was, was doing high end games and champ games and on, on the other crew. So it's, you know, we, we got to watch a lot of their, their broadcasts. We watched them do their studio shows. So we knew what Joel brought to the table, his, his, you know, football knowledge and passion for the game. So when, when we got them together, the, the biggest adjustment was we had spent four years of Gus and CD kind of getting on the same page. And then when Charles Davis went to the NFL, we had to kind of start over. So the rest of the crew was kind of on the Gus and Charles page, which is a different style. And that's, that's the key was to try to, to take what we were already doing, but then adjust. We had a new analyst and I think Fox, especially as an analyst driven, uh, broadcast across all our sports. You know, we hire experts that know the game, played the game at the highest levels, uh, can, can, teach it to people or passionate about it. So it was taking Gus, who's already, you know, a college football, college basketball brand name and, and has a style of his own that just nobody, nobody will ever duplicate. I don't think. And then mixing that with, with Joel, who's just like his knowledge of football is like no one else had been around. So, it was it was kind of getting them to get to know each other. So I think the first year the broadcasts were pretty good because you had two professionals that were really good in their own right, but you didn't have that marriage that you're talking about. And then every year since then they've gotten to know each other. And I, I think it's the stupid things. It's the dinners. It's any time we hang out after a meeting or after a game. We we love to watch other broadcasts together. You know, if we do an early game, we watch the late games. If we do the late game where we're sitting in the truck watching the early games and we get passionate about the games and that's when we get to know each other. And I think like, I really thought last year you finally saw them kind of break through that doing a high quality broadcast and actually being more personable on the air with each other. Like they finally kind of let that layer go of being comfortable being themselves with each other and they know each other, they know each other's sense of humors, they know each other's strengths and they, they trust each other so much at this point that I think that carries over and you can hear it in the broadcast. So I think that, you know, as much as I could do, I mean, that's, that was really on them. All I could do is try to get them to be around each other as much as possible because I think that's when that comes out. Gus is interesting to me in that, and I say this is somebody who doesn't know him that well. I've got to know him a little bit over the last probably three years. But seeing him from afar, I kind of knew him as Gus was the guy who'd become a star during the NCAA basketball tournament. You know, when you're flipping around, you got all these different broadcasts. And then I don't know if I had a chance to see him that much with CD, you know, maybe a little bit. I obviously, I'm not a soccer guy, so I didn't see much of that. I did see him occasionally on a, you know, he did some some MMA uh, broadcasts. But what I've noticed, especially now, certainly with, with Joel, there is, he feels, and I don't think this is forced, but he feels like an authentic performer in a way that very few, very few play by play guys, people, play by play people are, in just right. that how he can sell a moment without overstepping a moment. From when you're sitting in there, how much of that is, I don't, I'm not contrived, but how much of that is, is discipline and because and, you've worked with a lot of a lot of play-by-play guys now in different ways where it's like there is an art to what he's doing and I think it comes through now maybe because Joel can kind of fill in some of the pieces around it so you got this brilliant I don't know a salesmanship of big yeah. moments I mean how do you work not how do you work around that but how has that kind of evolved over the last few years I think just like what you're saying, you know, early on, I knew Gus. Gus had worked at CBS. I was working the NFL. So occasionally you'd see Gus 
you know, I was lucky enough to work on a, a higher crew. So a lot of times he was doing the Jacksonville games and, and things that we weren't, they're doing AFC teams for the most part. They're doing the teams that don't necessarily cross over to the games we're doing. So I, you know, I knew Gus from YouTube in the football or like sports center, things like that. And all Madden, the, the game, you know, the EA game. And then basketball, which everyone watches the tournament that's a sports nut. So, I mean, I knew him from there. And, you know, you knew Gus more for those big calls and, and things like that. I, I, the, the thing that I got to respect from very early on with Gus the, when we talked is his heroes and the guys he looked up to as play-by-play guys were the guys that, that I always kind of – liked you know i think he really harkens back to the old school you know pat summerall's dick embergs guys like that are, are the guys he likes you know he, he it's to him he's not the star it's funny because we all think of him as the star because of his amazing calls and when he hits those moments when they come to him but that's that's the beauty of gus is like i think the more you watch him and the more people get exposed to him, the more they realize how technically good a play-by-play guy is. He's, he's minimalist. He's a point guard. He's there to set up storylines if we're just in a, in a portion of a game where you're just kind of letting the game develop. He's setting the stage. He's, he's really passing the ball to, to Joel most of the time. But then when those moments happen, it's really our job, the Rich Dewey, our director's job, and that's Gus's job, and it's for the rest of us to get out of the way. Joel feels that and is adamant about it. Me and him talk about it a lot as a philosophy. When those moments happen, it's shut up, let them happen. 90% of that doesn't need any of us talking, and Gus is so underrated in that he knows. He makes his call, and then he, then he stops, and he just lets the moment speak for itself. And I think everyone remembers the call, and everyone forgets his professionalism and just really feeling the moment. And the thing that he's started kind of beating our heads recently is the beauty of college football is, you know, you don't remember week seven NFL 2015 Patriots Colts necessarily, but you're going to remember Red River two years ago that didn't necessarily make a big deal in the the college football landscape. But Texas and Oklahoma fans are always going to remember that game. And there's moments in that game, especially the kids that are in college at that point. So it's really, you know, it's a memory for them. And that's Gus. Some, something Gus has said a lot to us recently is, is understand we're doing pieces of history in college football. These are moments that could get played and people are going to remember and are going to bring them back to a place and, and respect that, you know? And I think that's something that we all really respect. We respect that. You only get to see a Baker Mayfield or a Kyler Murray or players like that for a, a small window of time as college players, and there's no guarantee they're going to be the NFL stars. So enjoy it. Enjoy the moment. Be in the moment. Let the moment come to you. And then he always delivers when that moment comes up, and it's amazing. Like You, you could go through all his games, and I can tell you, you watch Hail Mary's, it's so hard to tell if the ball gets caught. He is so seldomly wrong. I mean, it, he just knows it. He, he can sense it. He feels it. I mean, he's up in these awful college booths, you know, the, these awful sidelines, and somehow he knows before even us watching it through the, the tight high-speed lenses and stuff are sure the guy caught it. He's, he's right. The guy caught it, and he calls the moment, and then he lets the moment speak for itself after that it's, it's just genius to watch him work yeah i mean on some level i i do agree with you i do and you you have a much closer lens into it but just knowing broadcast and i feel like you know i've been fortunate to work with joe davis the last couple of years and joe is super mm-hmm. talented but there and and it's not to say one is better than the other one is but there is something different about gus than any other play-by-play guy i've heard and so you know, it's a really, it's a, it's kind of a treat to watch him do get to listen to him do games. So you mentioned, you mentioned Pat Summerall. This is cool that you have a unique perspective. You worked as a, you know, when you're starting out in your, I guess, early twenties or mid twenties, I don't know what it was on, on the Madden Summerall crew. So you, and obviously truly iconic broadcast, the, probably the best crew that's ever done it. 
what is your favorite story of them? Maybe it's not a game story. Maybe it's a travel story or something that people probably don't know about John Madden and Pat Summerall. You know, they're, they're almost different, like, because the, the, the Summerall one to me was, I, I grew up in Texas. I'm a Cowboys fan from birth. Never even had a choice. It, it was decided for me before I even knew what I was watching. And during college, when I started to get in the business, the Cowboys were on their, you know, three Super Bowls in four seasons. Troy Aikman, Jerry Jones just bought the team, run. And that was all Pat and John calling their games every Sunday. Pat, Pat and John in, did all the home Cowboy games with CBS and then transitioned to Fox for years. No other crew for the, the CBS and Fox ever traveled to Dallas. I mean, it was, I saw them every week. So for me, it wasn't just Pat and John, it was the crew. Like at the end of the game, they'd do the, the credits and it'd be like, this game was produced by Bob Stenner and directed by Sandy Grossman. And then when I got, I was on the crew at a, at, as a runner, which is basically a daily hire. You make 50 bucks. You just want to get around it and meet people and stuff for a few years. And then I got the opportunity to join the crew when I graduated from college. And the guys knew my face a little bit because I'd been around a lot, but they didn't know me. So the very first meeting I get introduced to the room, John Madden uh, basically told me that uh, he didn't really need to know me now because he didn't know if I'd be here in four weeks, that I'd earn it for him to get to know me. But up until that point, he was good. He didn't really need to meet me, which I, which was pretty funny at the, at the time. And then past Summerall, I walked up to shake his hand, and I was like, how's it going, Chuck McDonald? Very nice to meet you. Can't wait to be on the crew. And he goes, well, glad to meet you, Pat Summerall. And just hearing his voice and his need and just his respect level to, to say his name said all all you needed was Pat. You know, it was never about Pat. It was just who he was. He just he loved it. Uh, you know, that's, a lot of people try to figure out what made that crew so good and kind of set the standard for what everything's built off of then in, in television broadcast. But that was it. I mean, those guys loved it every second of being around it they loved the the camaraderie of the group they loved watching film they loved uh, getting ready for the game and they couldn't be more excited for the kickoff when, when we actually got there so i mean that that's that was the thing i learned the most and that, that goes from all all of the crew like everybody on it felt that way what was it like and to then, be to be part of that inner circle where you know you'd hear the joy from john madden when he did a game that's probably more than anything else, what everybody gravitated to. But what was it like to be part of that inner circle on like maybe a Saturday night dinner or one of those meals or something or in the meetings to be around him? John was funny because once he got to the season, there was nothing but football. I mean, he didn't, this was football season and we didn't, you know, somebody brought up like, hey, did you see that movie or that TV show or whatever? He'd have none of it. Like we were there to talk football 24-7, all week, you know, I'd start talking to John on Mondays, on the phone, multiple times a day, we'd get on site, everything was football. And the it, it was amazing because what, what you realized, and it took years for you to even realize it was, it was happening, but what John did between talking to us on the phone, talking to Stenner and Grossman on the phone, doing radio shows all week, was he was narrowing down the focus to what he was going to do on the broadcast. He was trying out things. He was working things out in his mind, but he was working them out with people. He wasn't sitting around with a notepad or whatever. He was figuring out what he wanted to talk about and what his, you know, what narrowing down what his opinions were on radio shows and in meetings and at dinners. So it was cool, especially once you realized it to be part of that process all week. And, he, he was really bouncing ideas and, and, you know, he'd throw out things that you had to look up the stats or know the stats or, you know, and without you realizing it, he was using you as a sounding board and, and kind of making, checking his facts on some of his opinions and things. And it was cool to watch his process and just like the fact that, that when John, I think a big part of why John walked away when he did wasn't that he lost his desire to do it. He knew that he couldn't put in that amount of time and effort into it anymore, and he knew no other way to do it. John was not going to keep doing it 
at 90% or 95%. If he wasn't in 100% the way that he thought it should be done and deserved to be done and his respect for the game of football, he just wasn't going to do it. And that that's when he chose to walk away, which, you know, I totally respect that. And and that's what I see out of the guys. You know, I think we're, we're lucky. You work with Brady. I work with Joel. You work with guys like that, and that's that's who they are. They're the same thing. They're they're driven. They love the sport. They dive headfirst into it. They can't wait for it to start. The second it ends, we start talking about next year. You know, the schedule starts to come out, and you get excited, and you start, which game are we going to do? Which, you know, should we do this one or that one? And it's just, you know, it's like Christmas Day when you start talking about the games. You know, you, you notice on Instagram and Twitter and stuff, like all the, the Herb Streets and Clats and guys tweeting out, hey, 100 days, I can't wait. And that's really how we all feel about it. And, you know, I, I think that's the key. Like, you know, hopefully that carries over to people at home that they, they truly realize the guys that, that do these things, these jobs. I mean, it's our dream jobs. It's what we always wanted to do. And we work our butts off doing it, you know, but it doesn't always feel like work because we just love what we do. You know, I know you feel that way. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that's that's an interesting thing to always keep in mind is just you get such an adrenaline. I mean, it's still different for me because I'm down on the field where you're kind of you feel the energy of the crowd. You feel everything. The players just ran out of the tunnel. But it's like there's so much of a buildup to this. You cannot wait for these games. You can't wait for the season. And then all of a sudden you're in the middle of it. So you're kind of ba- trying to balance your adrenaline. And, yeah. you know, I'm not a, you know, I didn't grow up in the broadcast business, obviously, the way some people did. You know, Gus, I remember we showed the video of Gus at, I don't know where he was, a news anchor, you know, probably oh, 25 Taylor. years ago. I mean, Waco. Waco. Yeah, yeah I mean, Waco, but, but it's like you have some of these people who, you know, Joe Davis, even though he's 30, has been doing TV for probably like a you know, broadcast for probably yeah. 12 years or maybe even more than that. So, but for me, it's like, okay, trying to balance the, the adrenaline that's coming inside with the excitement you have for the game while not just coming out like a million, like a rocket ship when, when, you're, when your mic goes on, you know, kind of thing. And that's a skill. That, oh, yeah. That is definitely a it's skill. Amazing. So before I let you go, I've heard some great stories over drinks about, <laughs> about the World League. What's the best oh, story my. you can you can you yeah, can tell our yeah, yeah. we we've taken to calling it the uh, football fire fest. <laughs> what story are you comfortable sharing for the public about <laughs> something that happened over in Europe when Fox was doing the the uh, the World League? Oh, you're talking way back. Oh, I'm talking God, way that, back. Uh, honestly, that thing seriously, you can't even. It all sounds made up. But probably the funniest thing that, that, that resonates with people. So imagine this. Troy Aikman is still the quarterback of the Dallas Cowboys. People, it's getting towards the end. It's probably a couple years before he retired. People are ta- trying to talk him into being an announcer and saying that he'd be really good at it. He's obviously, as we've seen since, he is really good at it. And for all the reasons people thought he would be, he really got it. He's so smart. He's smart loves the game, all of those things that we, we knew he would be good on TV. So they talk him into coming over there. And we were based out of Frankfurt that year. And I think his game was up in Dusseldorf. So it's like about an hour ride up the Autobahn from Frankfurt. And we all we all left. We, we had cars over there because we're all living there for like three months. And he had left with a different group and took off. And we were all going to meet up there for dinner or something. And we're flying down the Autobahn, you know, 100 miles an hour. And as we're coming up, we see this car on the side of the road, broken down. And, you know, people are flying by at 100 miles an hour. And there's Trey Aikman, like, on the edge of the Autobahn, getting out of the car. And and all of us, all we can picture is that somehow we're going to be responsible for Trey Aikman getting run over on the Autobahn. And just that moment of realizing, like, the the guys that we had coming over there. I mean, Chris Carter, when he was still an all-pro receiver, was calling games yearly over there. Uh, Moose Muhammad, when he was coming off of a Super Bowl, was calling games over there. I mean, Daryl Johnson, still the fullback of the Cowboys, you know. We would run guys through there that, that were just, like, you know, again, we're still super fans, and I was I was very young in the business, so I was that was even more of a super fan that happened to work in the business. 
just that being around those guys and seeing them as real guys and stuff that was the amazing part it was really the football was cool but it was the dinners and the going out and experiencing europe as a you know a 26 year old kid with guys that were playing in the nfl was amazing I won't ask you to name this person, but um, true or false, there was there was some challenges understanding that American money didn't work over there. <laughs> there were there were there were several challenges. We had we had uh, one NFL player who came over who couldn't get over the fact they wouldn't take his money in London. Which basically what what we ended up doing is is converting some money for him in London and then he did a game in Germany and he couldn't get over the fact they still wouldn't take his new money <laughs> and having to explain to him that every country, and this was before the Euro, so even more so that every country didn't use us currency. And then we had another guy who got sent home from the airport because he was of the belief that since we traded with the countries, as he called London and uh, Frankfurt and Scotland, since we traded with those countries that uh, he wasn't in, it wasn't necessary for him to have a passport, which he tried to explain to the, fl- the flight attendant that was checking him in, uh, only to be told that he was not going to get to uh, London that day without one. So it, it was it was interesting. I think a lot of people travel a lot more over there these days. So I think the understanding over here is a little more. But it, it was a time when not a lot of people went to Europe, and the, just the, the silly things of not knowing that they had different currency, that they worked on different electricity, you know, things like that, or going to Scotland and driving on a different side of the road. It, it was definitely an adventure. I, I'm, I'm shocked that nobody's made a documentary about it because the, the names that were over there, you know, Kurt Warner played over there, Jake DeLome, John Kidna. All the all the referees. Mike Pereira was one of was a young guy that was working over there. Pretty much every ref that's, that did a you know in the last twelve years worked over there at some point. A lot of front office people, you know, TV people. It, it's crazy that someone hasn't taken these great stories and made them into something because there is there are things that definitely belong in a movie well hopefully somebody will listen to this podcast and think of that and go you know what (laughs) i'm gonna try to get chuck and people like chuck to spill more of the dirt and find out who some of these players are i don't want to ask you about a certain defensive backs broadcast (laughs) then over there but the guy, the guy they need to get to, which I've actually uh, spoken to him, and I think he'd do it, is uh, Oliver Luck, who at one point was the commissioner over there. And actually, Andrew was over there with him for a while. That's where he, he got his love of soccer was during that period. He His stories, I mean, some of the stuff that was running through the front office and guys they had to send home or issues they had to deal with, with guys living over there that were playing, that were you know straight out of college and didn't know how to handle being in Europe. I mean, some of those are just amazing. I, I don't even know all of them. I've heard a few of them, and it, those would be amazing to hear. And, you know, I guess the hardest part is a lot of people don't want to name names. That a lot of these stories, if you don't if you don't say who who they were, would be not quite as good as if you knew who they were. Yeah, I have a buddy who played in the NFL for a little while, who's a great storyteller, and he speaks of this. I don't, I don't know if it's fair to call him a journeyman, but went over. I think he was in. I think he was in Germany, and somebody told him he wanted to. He was getting introduced, and he wanted to say something to the crowd in German, and was told by somebody what to say. And then the crowd, there was kind of a hush, and then there was big cheers for it because what he said was not what he intent, what he thought he was saying. <laughs> it was something really crude. And that guy became a little bit of a folk hero over there. And his, per- and I guess this guy's personality is to play it up anyway. But so there are stories like that where lost in translation definitely would work uh, over there, I think. So, oh, yeah. So hopefully somebody will pick up the ball and run with it um, <laughs> in this case. So, all right, Chuck. Well, we appreciate your insight. We look forward to uh, seeing. Seeing uh, you guys in the fall, uh, as, as I said, Chuck McDonald's the lead producer for the Gus Johnson, Joel Platt, Jenny Taft crew at Fox Sports. Uh, you're going to see a lot of them early in the day on our, on our schedule. So, Chuck, thanks for joining us on the Audible today. Hey, appreciate it, man. Thank you.
If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to The Audible on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a five-star review while you're at it. It helps get the word out. Thanks to Trader Joe's for being our presenting sponsor. Our producer is Nick Fink. Our theme song is Dangerous by Kevin and the Octave. You can download their music on iTunes and Spotify. Follow me, Stu, at SL Mandel on Twitter and Bruce at Bruce Feldman CFB. And subscribe to The Athletic if you haven't done so already. You can try it for free, seven-day free trial at theathletic.com slash free trial. Come on, get over here. Yeah.